You know, I feel like I just talked about this whole, it's all just a dream problem. Although, this time she does actually remember the events of the dream, so it totally matters, right? Wrong. This episode, God, what do I even say about this episode? Who's this by? This is by, uh, let's see, Braga came up with the story, but he couldn't actually write it. He actually wanted to, but he was working on all good things. So he ended up going over and giving it off to Renea Echeverria, who apparently didn't really know what to do with it. And uh, by God, it shows. Because what this is, this is two episodes kind of shoved into one. I don't know where that's coming from. Let's just work that out of my system. There we go. And neither, this isn't an A-plot, B-plot problem. The problem is the episode starts off as one plot and then shifts into another with all of the subtlety of a semi-downshifting on the highway, or a lorry for you British viewers. Um, yeah, I don't know what to make of this. Cliff Bull did the directing, though, which I only point out because he apparently really wanted to practice or play around with the camera, or he didn't get the memo that only some of the episode is in a dreamland, because he spends a lot of the episode doing very interesting and dynamic camera angles. I mean that sincerely. Like almost the entire teaser, he likes to play with the camera and do thing, do either uh, distances or angles or moving shots that aren't normal, that aren't normally done on the show. And I actually appreciated it. It was good. It showed uh, it showed good director talent. So it cratzed a bowl on that one. The problem was he also used the Dutch angle multiple times, and usually the Dutch angle means you know mind affecting or illusion or dream or whatever. But he does it for the scenes that are actually happening. I have no idea why he did that way, and I don't care that much. But I do want to say one thing as well. I don't know about you guys, but, like, I suppose this is hypocritical to mention, but at the same time, I acknowledge my own flaw in this. You ever act alongside someone who is a substantially different quality actor than you? <laughs> like, what I mean by that, let me phrase this differently. Have you ever seen someone act much better than someone else in the same scene. Uh, I've seen that a lot. On, on this show, on other shows, uh, Babylon 5 had that problem, where they'd have a really good actor just nail their performance in the same scene as someone who's clearly phoning it in. Uh, a lot of movies have this problem, too. The reason I bring this up is there's this guy, uh, Lunaboss, who I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but I couldn't find a record of how to pronounce it. He's the guy who plays Swan, or Daniel, or whatever the heck his name is, because they keep changing their mind. Lieutenant Quan. And, not Swan, sorry, Swan's in StarCraft 2. Lieutenant Quan, the guy who commits suicide at the beginning of the episode. He's not a good actor. Not not terrible. I have seen worse guest stars in Star Trek. And you can kind of see why they'd want to phone it in for someone who basically has like five lines. But, I want you to watch that intro. And I want you to watch Jonathan Frakes acting his heart out. Now, he is overacting. I don't want to sound like he's an incredible actor, but you could tell Frakes was throwing himself into the role and desperately trying to talk down this officer, who he knows personally, down from suicide and just being absolutely devastated by it when he fails. Not just in this scene, but in the next scene as well. This hits him like a ton of bricks. I point that out because it's really weird contrast. No, you don't understand. You've got so much to live for. No, I don't. I should just kill myself. But, but think of your family. Think of all the people you'll be leaving behind. <laughs> think, think about all of the uh, 
reasons. You you just got promoted. You've you've got a relationship. Uh, think of your. What is your grandmother going to say back home? You don't understand. I have nothing to li like. It, it it deflates the scene in a weird way. It almost adds to the surreality of it, which is funny because again, not a dream. So. Um. I had a note here on my on my notes, and it probably says a lot about how horrible of a person I am. Because I said, I wonder why suicide is so rare in Starfleet. Now, the thing is, that was my knee-jerk thought. You know, Picard makes this comment I've never had. It, Stewart does a good job with this, too, by the way. I've never had to inform people of a crewman death because of suicide before. And remember, Picard's been doing this for like 30 years at this point, as a captain. So, yeah, <clears throat> kind of feel for the guy. But then I started thinking about it. Uh, um, I'm going to stray over the controversial line a little bit in this episode. I try not to talk about suicide. I do. Uh, because I have a lot of personal experience with suicide on both sides of the fence, so to speak. And I also, I have noticed that people get weird when you bring up suicide. They just get weird about it, all kind of uncomfortable and weird. So if this, if that's a topic that does affect you and makes you feel weird or uncomfortable, hit stop. <laughs> just, just do me the favor. It's okay. I understand. No judgment. No judgment. I have things that make me feel very uncomfortable that I just try to avoid too. For those of you still here, yeah, I've tried to commit suicide a few times. I've still got a nice long scar on this arm. I, I'm sure you can't see it on the camera. Maybe if I adjust it, I could. It, it goes from here down to about here. And that's just the most obvious one. I got a bunch of others. And I know exactly what it feels like to want to die. You know why I know that? It's it's actually a very simple, basic concept. It's the phrase, worse than death. Data later actually comments on how he can't possibly understand why anyone would ever want to deliberately terminate their life. But the problem is, it is incredibly easy to understand the concept, because all you have to do is acknowledge the concept of worse than death. The moment you acknowledge that that concept exists, that's a real thing, then you start to understand suicide. Now, I'm going to go ahead and admit something here. Uh, I don't actually have any issues up top. I've talked about that before. And I am an amateur at best when it comes to mental health issues, so I do try to stay away from that. Not because I want to be like, oh, it's not should be talking about, but because I am ignorant, and I know it. So I'm not talking about any legitimate issues or mental health problems, although I have encountered someone who was severely bipolar, who I had to physically restrain from causing themselves pain and probably death. So I have experienced it, I just don't understand it. Actually, been around several bipolar people in my life. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. No, no, no. I've talked about this before. It's kind of similar to depression. I've talked about this concept before. And I, in my incredibly ignorant amateur understanding, there's what I call, I don't know the professional term, but what I call chemical depression, which is when something is regularly and chemically depressing the way your brain works, basically, and is making you into a depressed state on a regular basis. And then there's situational depression, which is, my grandmother just died, who I was very close to, and uh, that has put me into a state where I am depressed. Not just sad, because there's a distinction between this. Sad is, oh, God, no, the puppy died. I'm, I'm sorry, that's horrible, but, you know... It, 
It was a sled. You know, that, that's a sad moment. Depressed, it affects you differently, right? I'm sure some of you understand that. You don't have to share. I understand. But, you know, it, it makes it so it's like, well, what's, what's the friggin' point? You wake up in the morning and just lay there like... Well, I, I guess I have stuff to do today. Look at the timer. I've only got 30 minutes to get ready for work. And and you just your mind just starts defeating you, right? I could try this, but what's the point? I could make this endeavor, but I won't succeed. I could reach out to this person, but they won't care. Right? Putting you into a depressed state, you know, situational depression, it's messed up. I've been there. Obviously, I'm explaining from personal experience. Now, I bring that up because... Weirdly enough, I've actually never wanted to commit suicide when I was in a depressed state. It's funny, right? Now, as I said, <clears throat> all you have to do is understand the concept of worse than death. But I bring all of that up because one of the biggest things that's a huge pet peeve of mine when it comes to mental health uh, in the country I live in, which is the States, the United States of America, is that people tend to treat mental illnesses or mental issues as in repeated, uh, recurring chemical issues and or situational issues, so in other words, both sides of the problem, as taboo or weird or, uh, right? Just, uh, just push that off the camera. There we go, there we go. It's, all, it's good now, right? I don't have to think about it. Now, obviously, that is a generalization, and there are exceptions, and there are some people who reach out to you both medically as well as personally and professionally, but that's been a problem for a while. That's not exactly a new problem. I don't know, what was my voice today? It's not a new problem. That goes back a long time. I mean, you know. <laughs> now, you're probably thinking, Laura, you're really going off on a tangent here. Well, believe it or not, all of this is tied into what I just talked about. I'm going to rein it all in. Because what I said was, wonder why nobody commits suicide in Starfleet. Well, maybe it's because people give a damn. Oh, not the people who are depressed, either, situationally or otherwise. No, I mean the people who aren't. Maybe they actually give enough of a damn in order to actually try to reach out and help and take care of and provide and support. You know, treat it as if you are someone who needs assistance, not someone who is a freak of nature. Maybe someone who would like to be treated as if they matter, or as if they are another person, a normal person, rather than some kind of oddity that needs to be treated like a bomb that's about to go off. Huh? I'm actually curious how many of you are nodding your heads at me right now. Just idly curious. Like I said, I'm speaking from the perspective of an amateur and an ignorant. I have to admit, this is something Lori Reloaded and I have had discussions about, that I do tend to think of federa the Federation as a bit of an idealized society, an organization that actually bothers to give a crap, for the most part. And this is one of the ways that I'd like to think that. Because with proper help and counseling and friend and aid and medical help, these kind of things can be adjusted to, or fixed, or worked around, or processed, or endured, or defeated. I firmly believe that. I have no evidence for it. I'll go ahead and admit it, but I do firmly believe in that truth. And so the ideal of the Federation being able to deal with such a consequence, that's awesome to me. 
Thus, even though I just went off on a rant about real life, I have to admit that things like this make me think that maybe someday we'll get there. That'd be nice. Data talks about the suicide thing. I already referenced this. And I have two things to say about it. First, he tries to awkwardly mimic Jordy's arm movement, which is stupid. This is season seven. Data should be fluidly making human gestures at this point. He's been studying that and processing that for um, like 20 years at this point. He, he, he can do an arm movement. Second point. <clears throat> Data talks about his birth. That's actually a pretty cool moment because he talks about how each time he would process something, because his neural net didn't, he didn't start sentient and sapient. He started in a very basic state and it would rebuild new pathways and rebuild new pathways, more and more complex. And he talked about how there was a greater and increasing threat of cascade failure the more complex they became, which is funny if you think about it. And by funny, I mean interesting, not funny at all, because it's actually horrible. That's what happened to Lal, the offspring, his daughter. That's exactly what happened to her. Cascade failure. And that was the end of it. And he relates the idea of how it would have been easier and simpler to just decide not to. You know, to basically commit suicide. It's interesting to think about. Then, well, then the episode spends a decent amount of time on multiple characters. I'm going to kind of gloss over this. It's good stuff. The first... Um, 20 minutes of the episode is actually really good. It's an analysis of multiple different sides of the angle of how the people who survive suicides... I'm saying that wrong. The people left behind after a successful suicide, how they deal with it. They even pretty much word for word pull some lines that I've heard before, like, ah, there was no sign, he seemed completely normal. I've decided not to go off on a rant on that one. All I'm going to say is this. There's signs. If you bothered to pay attention and care, you would notice. Moving on. Like, I, I could do a huge rant on that one. Um, then there's this bit. Now, this is actually funny. So uh, she talks about how her boyfriend, like, oh, man, he, he, he sensed something from her. And I'm like, oh, that's a nice little quiet bit of foreshadowing. That is an empath. Then they spent the next two minutes talking about how he's an empath because he's an empath because his grandmother was an empath and he's an empath and empath. And I was like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> Give the episode too much credit. My bad. So we've got some possibilities and, you know, the impact of suicide, the implication of suicide and, you know, what would drive a Federation personnel to suicide. But then, then it starts to fall apart a little bit. We actually have a straight up jump scare. <laughs> actually, two in a row. Uh, well, I say in a row, one, and then like there's like a three-minute gap, and then there's another one. And that's just, okay. And then Worf has his perspective about being a believer in faith and blah, blah, blah around Troy, which is actually pretty nice. Um, then he acts like a 17-year-old around Riker. Worf is awkward in his own way. Worf is very personal, very private. Worf is not this. This was written as if Worf was a human. Worf is not a human. And it bothers me because they bother to do this whole scene about Worf being awkward and like, I don't know, maybe I should date Troy. Because they were trying to move the Worf-Troy thing further together. Which is funny because this is arguably the first episode where that really goes anywhere. And it's all in Troy's head. So, cute. 
That part makes sense. The part that's in... Oh, yeah, spoilers. Half the episode... Excuse me. More than half the episode occurs in Troy's head. That part makes perfect sense because, obviously, she would perceive the courtship in a way that, you know, is however she'd want to be courted, not the way Worf would court her. We can ask Jadzia how Worf would court someone or be courted by someone, I suppose as the case may be, anyways. So... <clears throat> So then, at 20 minutes and 40 seconds, we enter Troy's head. Now, I'm going to... When they go into that, the, the computer, Major Barrett in the background, is counting down how long it's going to be before the auto shutdown. And that's a very nice touch, which I'll be talking about in a minute, but I just wanted to draw your attention to it first, because it's something I want to address. So then, we switch to the first-person camera, the Utopia Planitia. Um, I'm going to kind of skip over most of the dream sequence stuff, because it's a dream sequence that doesn't matter. No, I'm serious. This doesn't give us any insight into Troy, the character. This doesn't develop or change the characters of the setting, the world, the people, or the Enterprise, or anything. All it does is tell the story that happened eight years ago through the lens of Troy. And then we get back to Troy. The suicide? The actual, real suicide? Completely forgotten. He's only mentioned once for the entire rest of the episode. Eh, arguably twice, but one of them's in the dream. It's ridiculous. I'm sorry, this is, this is when the episode loses me. The 20 minute and 40 second mark. That's when the episode officially loses me. I'm like, okay, sure. But before I go any further, I do want to mention a couple things. So first of all, Mark Ralston is awesome. He is his usual incredibly creepy self. Um, he played an actual serial killer over on Babylon 5. That was cute. He did a really good job of that, too. And he plays a very creepy person here, and he does an excellent job of it. We'll be seeing him again on Enterprise. Twice. Then we've got Worf, who is, again, very awkward and very human. Sure, okay, moving on. Uh, then we have Troy get jealous. Now, this is the interesting thing. First of all, actually, there's two interesting things. First of all, Troy gets super jealous because something is mentally affecting her. Again. This has happened before. You remember that? When she was the uh, psychic trash bucket or whatever the hell they called it back in that terrible, terrible episode. So... The other thing that's interesting about it, though, is her super jealousy thing starts out way too early. Like, Worf decides to go talk to the, the, the Ensign Calloway, or whatever her name is. Just talk. And the music's like... Na, 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 na. And the, the, it zooms around Troy, and Troy's looking like, what's going on over there? Like, something's weird. <sighs> Cheating senses tingling. And it starts off way early way before there's any actual signs of cheating. And, of course, they're, they're totally cheating because that's the way the, the illusion goes. So, um, the mystery then becomes who was killed and why is this? And this is why I say this is two plots. Because all of a sudden the episode becomes about who was killed, why, and where. You know, what are these two people doing? Why is Marina Sirtis's, uh stand-in double being murdered by Mark Rolston? You know, just all sorts of stuff like that, right? And it's pretty boring and it's pretty dumb. But uh, good camera stuff. Good camera stuff. I will agree that. Uh, I think the music really hurts a lot of the scenes because it's just generic, creepy mystery music which actively detracts from it. And that's even made worse by the fact that Troy suddenly decides to jump back into her season two jumpsuit, which is is even worse, frankly. It, there's a scene where she's running down the corridor and it's actually kind of comical because Marina Sardis is trying to act in that thing. And it's vi physically, visibly noticeable that she's having trouble with it. To contrast that, 
there's some really good stuff right at the end of the of the dream sequence. Which, if you'll notice, I just jumped forward about 20 minutes in the episode, because that's how little I have to say about it. <clears throat> so we jump forward, and there's some really good camera shots. Basically repeats of the camera shots from the very beginning, which were in, the re- you know, in reality. And uh, we also have the repeating mantra of, you know what you have to do. And again, Ralston just nails that. Of course he does. <sighs> and then, pwah! It's alive! And then we hear the computer voice. So I'm going to read a quote here, real quick, real quick. It was confusing, says Jerry Taylor. We were hindered by our production restraints. You can do a story in which someone has a hallucination or a dream and make the real clear to the audience if you do a location you never had a visit at any time, except in the hallucination begins or ends. We didn't have that luxury. We had one set. So it was utterly perplexing as to when the hallucination started. I can only say I realized that, and I'm sorry for it. I only hope the episode had enough sheer mystery to draw one along. I think it did. You never quite knew what was going on. And, of course, okay. <clears throat> Um, Jerry Taylor, I, I hate to talk over you, but because you're talking down to yourself, but you did fine. Of all the complaints I have in this episode, that's not one of them. That worked great because of Major Barrett and the computer voice. It's just quiet and subtle enough because the camera work doesn't change. The lighting work doesn't change. The outfit changes, but that's irrelevant. But the point is, you can tell because the computer starts counting down. 78 seconds. And then when she comes out at the end, 77 seconds. That's actually really, really well done. Good continuity, good audio effects style, and overall good presentation of story. It's one of the better aspects of the story because it makes it very quick and very immediately apparent when exactly the jump happened. Even if nothing else, the moment you hear her say 77 seconds, that tells you exactly when she jumped in, even if it wasn't clear the first time you were viewing it. So that's brilliant. And I just wanted to praise that, as weird as that may sound. Second thing. So then they have a dumb explanation at the end where they talk about how psychic energy was blasted by plasma into cellular residue on a bulkhead and sat there for eight years undisturbed, but it is psionically linked with it. It's a load of nonsense. Let's just move on. I, I don't even know where to begin with how incredibly monumentally stupid that is. So again, let's just move on to something I thought was interesting. One of the comments I've heard most commonly about this episode is that it feels like the writers uh, didn't want to go full tilt with a suicide story. (laughs) And I can understand why, because this is the 90s. You think it's awkward to talk about suicide now? (laughs) This is like 25 years ago. So, okay, they don't want to do a full suicide episode. So they decide instead of it actually being suicide, there's some psychic blah, 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 fling and flower, fling, flash, and blah, blah, blah. And that just explains everything, right? Here's the interesting thing about the episode, and they just kind of sneak it under the rug because there was a suicide. A real suicide. And a murder. And, a, and an affair, which is emphasized to be a cheating affair. And... We happen to know, thanks to the context of things, that when the couple found out, or were found out by the person he, that was being cheated upon, they laughed at him. Now, if you don't understand why I'm really trying to, to emphasize this point, in the great, brilliant future of the Federation, there's no, no one would ever commit suicide. They would, however, uh, have an illicit affair, they would mock the person they're cheating on, they would murder, and then they would commit suicide. 
<laughs> what? Oh, and while we're on the topic, I know I said earlier that, oh, no, people totally care in the Federation. I do have to point out that uh, their investigators are apparently a load of hogwash. Because an accident that, excuse me, an accident that killed three people was investigated so little that it took them eight years and a psychic to figure out what happened. Ultimately, this episode's kind of inoffensive. It gave me some interesting things to think about. And for real, I do think the first half of the episode, up till the 20-minute mark, is actually really good. Funnily enough, one of my favorite Voyager episodes, which is actually a Neelix episode of all things, is also very heavily about suicide. But that episode actually did a really good job with it. This episode got, got about a third of the way there, halfway there. It's okay. It can't possibly get worse from here. Let's see. What's next week's it? Oh. Oh. I'll, I'll see you next time, guys. Whew.